Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to the Word. We want to look today at the Lamb and 144,000 from Revelation chapter 14. You know, one of the great joys of parenting is watching your children grow. And as they grow and develop, you begin to hear things like, daddy, daddy, look at me, mommy, mommy, watch this. And over and over, and sometimes it can get repetitive. I can say it more than once in a series of just a few seconds. (laughs) But they're desiring the assurance of the parent's love. A child has this innate need to know that they are loved by mom and dad. Here's the interesting thing about that. It doesn't end with childhood. Is it not true that every person desperately needs to know they are loved in this life? And to be assured of that regularly, Spouses should be regularly communicating love in their life to one another and assuring one another of the spouse's love. You've heard the joke that said, well, I told my wife I loved her when we got married and if it changed, I'll let her know. That's a fool's counsel, right? It may be all too common. It's still a fool's counsel. Strong relationships are built by these little things that we do to nurture the assurance of our love. Even in friendship, that is true as well when we assure people of our love for them. And you know, with God, the need for that assurance is no different. We need to be assured of his love in life as we grow in our fellowship of him. And God stands glad and ready to assure us of his love That's what we're going to learn today in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 concludes a section that started in chapter 12 that we called an interlude. And throughout the book of Revelation, there are a few of these interludes where John takes a pause from telling the story and gives us a little more detail and insight into what he's been talking about and what he's about to talk about. And that's what we've seen here. Chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're seeing the end of all judgment, the final judgment of God upon Jesus' return and what that will be like. And last week, I'll be honest with you, it it got a little rough. There was a little turbulence, right? As we got introduced to Satan and the wars of heaven. However, those turned out in our favor. If you are unsure about the final score, we win because Jesus has won. That's what chapter 12 tells us. But Satan got so furious, he came to earth. He stood on the sands of the seashore and he called forth the first beast. The beast from the sea, who we later learned was the Antichrist or the false Christ, who tries to replace Jesus Christ. And to continue to expand his work, he called forth the beast from the land, which we understand as the false prophet, who performs really powerful, miraculous looking signs in order to woo people and to deceive them by attracting their attention and causing them to worship the first beast, the Antichrist. Man, at the end of chapter 13, it just got vicious, didn't it? Well, 
Chapter 14 today is a contrast to the viciousness of chapter 13 by the victorious nature of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to see today. We have seen the worst and we are here today to learn that Christ is still the best. What I want you to understand today is that Jesus calls his people to faithful endurance and he assures us of his love by judging sin and rewarding obedience. Now, I do need to give a disclaimer that I learned this week. As we were teaching one of the sessions this week, our teaching content was another pastor from Kansas City and I uh, were teaching the whole book of Revelation in about a four and a half to five hour setting uh, across four sessions. I was blessed to be able to teach chapters six through 18. Those are all the judgment chapters. He got all the God loves you chapters. I got all the judgment chapters. So, uh, you know, I say that tongue in cheek. Uh, I hope you understand that. But uh, after each of our two sessions in the morning and the two in the afternoon, we'd have a QA. and a And uh, our largest group of the week, there were probably 110 or so people sitting in the room and it was a little stymie. It's 94 in Managua today. So they're not having the same spring weather that you and I are having. Uh, a man called for the mic and came over. Of course, we have interpreters, so I don't understand everything that is getting said until I am told what he was said. But he began to turn and speak to the crowd rather eloquently, I could tell. It was, I was impressed by what he was saying at first. Until the interpreter turned around after he'd finished and said, he just told them not to listen to y'all because you were false teachers and Jesus was coming in 2024. I felt kind of sure that he was the false teacher since he's doing the very thing Jesus told us not to do, predicting the time, but I feel like it's only fair if I warn you today, he says, I'm a false teacher. Okay, some of you don't know me well or like, what in the world are you talking about? I want us to look today at four words of assurance for faithful endurance in Jesus, four words of assurance. And the first word that we're going to look at today is a word of victory, a word of victory. Look at verses one through five with me of chapter 14. Let me read these and then we'll continue. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth was no lie found for they are blameless. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding and the obeying of his word today. A word of victory. John sees standing on Mount Zion, the 144,000, and they have the follower, the father's name written on their foreheads. 
Now here, Mount Zion, which is a place on the earth, the Temple Mount uh, uh, in Jerusalem is located there, but John is referencing a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly Mount Zion, because the song of the redeemed is being sung in the throne room of heaven. And this 144,000 is a reference to all the redeemed people of God. It's the same reference to the group that we identified in Revelation chapter 7 when we were introduced to them by this name. It is a number that resembles completeness in all of those who are gathered. And there was a voice from heaven that sounded, John says, like the roar of many waters and loud thunder. And like harpists playing their harps, so were the voices of those who were singing this song. If you've ever heard a live harp play, you know what he's describing here. When a harp first begins to play, it's not unlike a guitar. They're stringing and strumming the strings. But the longer the harpist plays, the more the sound grows. And the longer they play, it swells to simply fill every aspect of space in the room that it inhabits. The imagery that John is providing here is that the voices of this choir in heaven, the voices of the redeemed were filling the throne room of heaven. There was not a place where the resonation of God's glory was not sounding forth from them. And it was a new song that was filling heaven that was sung by all the attendants of heaven and even the elders and only those who are the redeemed from the earth can learn. I remember hearing a young man one time tell about his coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he would say, you know, I came to church for a number of months to hear the message, but I would not come during the singing because the singing I got so angry in my heart over. I couldn't agree with the words and the tunes themselves irritated me. And even when I became Came, uh, when I would come earlier and listen to the singing, I would grow angry at the songs because they were offensive to me. I couldn't sing them. I didn't like them. I'm reminded of that here. Just so you know the end of that story, that young man came to faith in Jesus Christ and loves to sing the song of heaven. That's what John is describing for us here. For the redeemed of God are the ones who will stand with Jesus on Mount Zion in heaven, the place of victory. We will bear the name of the Father and of the Son to show and declare his glory and also to declare it through singing, through singing. He provides four descriptions of these singers, their lives and what marked them. The first one we see in verse four is that they, it was those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now, this is not a literal rendering of their sexual activity or their sexual purity, but rather it is a phrase used in the scriptures to denote the purity of the group. This is the bride of Christ who is preparing herself, who is making herself ready by the blood of Jesus and awaiting the bridegroom. There's an anticipation with the lives of these people and the purity of their life denotes the zealousness of that anticipation. They had not given themselves to defiling relationships. 
They had not given themselves over to worldly powers or worldly priorities. They remained pure in their life and not because of their own perfection, but because of their faith in being washed by the blood of Jesus and following him by faith and obedience. Friends, there's no question that with this first description, we see a great contrast with too much of the church today. Sexual immorality always defiles our devotion to God and it confuses our priorities. It steals our intimacy with the Lord. And this is the one great defilement of the church today. It's not the only, but I think there's a strong case to be made that it is the leading. The promiscuity, the allowance of sexual immorality through the church even among its leaders, we see it far too often filling the headlines. And if it's not for the activity, it's the compromise on the teachings of the scripture regarding biblical sexual ethics. God didn't really mean that. He didn't mean it that way. He absolutely meant it that way, friends. He didn't make a mistake when he wrote it. He didn't make a mistake when he commanded it. And this sexual immorality and even the compromise on biblical sexual ethics, we say we want to reach people and, and we want to make a way for them. But I'm telling you, it's defiling devotion to God. It is staining people's character as well as their conduct. And it is deceiving by false teaching. But those who sing in heaven's song are pure in their devotion and of worship. To God. The second characteristic that we see is that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. You see, this qualification of following Jesus is the opposite of idolatry. There is a fidelity to the Lord that characterizes God's people. Their loyalty was not divided between Jesus and other equal priorities of life. They set their life to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else. They did not pick and choose what they liked or what they wanted to believe and ignored the rest. They did not twist God's will to serve their wants. They did not twist God's word to fit their preferences or their perverseness. They believe and they trust what he said and they lived in obedience by faith to what he had commanded. That's why those gathered around the throne were marked by faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. The third characteristic that he offers of this group is that they were redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. The redeeming power of God on their life marked their life as his people. They had been changed by Jesus Christ, not just improved by their own self help. They were set free to be sold out to Jesus. And that's what they had done. They had offered themselves sacrificially for him. Just as Romans 12, 2 says, that now because we have been transformed by the power of God, we can be living sacrifices for him. And God said, I receive the offering of your life. We've already seen that's who was living under the altar in the throne room of heaven. Friends, there's nothing more powerful than a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. There's no greater act of worship. There's no greater word of testimony. Let me ask you to ask of yourself today, what would you have to do? 
What would you have to be set free from in order to live sold out to Jesus? What's stopping you? This group gathered around the throne lived sacrificially and God received them as a faithful offering. The fourth characteristic says that in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless, blameless. You see, this group was marked by truth and truthfulness. They were truth tellers. What did they tell the truth about? They told the truth about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. They didn't bend the marks of God and his triune being in order to fit the ideologies of the world. They told the truth about sin. They didn't shy away from it. They just shared it. And they told the truth about man's need to be reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. They told the truth and that it is found in God's word, the Bible. And what a stark contrast we see here, even from chapter 13, where the very Antichrist himself breathed out blasphemies against God, blasphemies about the work of God, and blasphemies about all the things about God. A stark contrast here to the lying, deceiving, the scheming, and the blaspheming of the Antichrist and his false prophet and all who followed him. This group refused to exchange the truth of God for a lie. They refused to compromise truth. They refused to be deceived by the false spirit. No matter how big his sham wow became, it was still just a sham. They rejected the ideologies, the philosophies, and the theories that opposed and twisted God's word. That'd be a fresh change in the world today. They didn't mishandle the scripture in order to justify human ideas about issues of their day, what we might call social issues today, to try to make God fit their agenda. They didn't deconstruct God to build the likeness of creative things that would bear their name instead of his. We must be clear though, friends, that they were blameless is not a reference to their own personal perfection, but rather a declaration of their redemption in Jesus Christ. These were people whose lives were changed because of Jesus Christ and the power of him working in them. So many today who claim to be God's people compromise truth in the name of love to make allowance for their own preferences, to make allowance for, for perverseness. And this is the very activity of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's not blamelessness, it's blame casting. It's guilt inducing, it's condemnation heaping. People who worship the one who is truth are a people marked by that truth as it is revealed in his word. And those gathered around the throne were people of truth who did not defile themselves by lies and deception. Four qualities marked this group around the throne, pure, faithful, redeemed, truthful. And friends, by our life, each one of us is marked for something as well. 
One commentator, Robert Mount, spoke words of great conviction and I wanna read them for you. He says this, the destiny of every person is determined by the mark that that person bears. When judgment comes, there will be no room for ambiguity. People will have by their mark declared their master. For the believer, it will be a time of joy and celebration as before the throne of heaven, they sing the new song of their redemption. Is your life marked for Jesus? This first word of assurance is a word of victory that those whose lives are marked for God will join in his song of heaven of the redeemed. But we have to ask, what mark is determining your destiny? What master is it identifying? Are you marked for God? Are you marked for some other? The second word of assurance for faithful endurance in Jesus that we see here is a word of warning. Look with me at verse six through verse 11. I'm going to work through these verses instead of reading them for the sake of time. In these verses, we see three angels who together provide a comprehensive warning about the final judgment. The first angel comes out and proclaims the eternal gospel to all who dwell on earth. And it tells us every nation and tribe and language and people. That is a comprehensive phrase used throughout the New Testament that tells us everyone, everywhere, of every form, manner, shape, uh, shade, ethnicity, race, likeness. It doesn't matter. Every person is involved in this phrase here. And this is who the eternal gospel goes out to. There is a call to fear God and to glorify him and by it the eternal purpose of God is set forth that he will judge those who have rejected him. And it goes forth to all who remain on the earth who do not worship God to declare his judgment is coming but at this moment there is still time to repent and believe. Immediately the second angel follows and this angel declares that Babylon the great has fallen. Now Babylon is a reference in the New Testament for the wicked world system that rejects God and does as it pleases in the face of God. And it tells us not that the fall has happened. As I told you, this interlude is giving us more detail for what is ultimately coming. But it does tell us that the fall is absolutely certain to happen and guarantees that it will happen. And so by this warning, there is a call to repentance. And then the third angel comes and describes how it is that those who identify with the beast will suffer under God's wrath. They will be tormented without rest by fire and sulfur and the smoke will rise continually without reprieve. It tells us that those who imbibe the wine of Babylon's immorality will ingest the undiluted wine of God's wrath. And friends, that's a drink you don't want anything of. There will be, listen, no rest from their torment. None. You see, friends, sin is an infinite offense to God's glory. Therefore, the only just and right punishment is permanent 
and eternal. You say, well, how in the world is this an assurance for followers of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you, it is an assurance to those martyrs that we were introduced to under the altar of heaven that God said, I've not forgotten you, but wait just a little longer and gave them their white robe as their prayers rose before God to vindicate his name. God says, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to answer it. It's an assurance to us who are still on the earth that God does hear our prayers. He does answer our prayers in his perfect timing, in his perfect will, and in his perfect way. We should keep raising them to him. This word counters the false prophet's declaration that those who will not worship the Antichrist will be killed. That's what we learned in chapter 13. For the Antichrist said, all must worship me. And the false prophet said, all must worship him. And if you do not, you will be killed. You see, they had their mindset on earth. Because in this world, it was the best life that you would ever have. And they promised that to you. That's so far below God's promise, friends. God says, I'm here to give you life eternally, abundantly. To the full. And so this message counters the message of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And those who do worship the beast would not have their best life, but would suffer a far worse fate than this world, torment without reprieve for eternity. And thirdly, it reminds us that it goes out to all the pagan worshipers and any others who are tempted to reject God, to dismiss God, to put God off one more day. At that time is not guaranteed, but what is guaranteed is that the end is near. Today is the day of God's salvation. God's wrath, friends, is not merely the outworking of some impersonal laws of retribution that are built on the structure of reality. It's not fate personified. It's not a happenstance. It's not possible. It's absolute, friends. God's wrath is the response of a righteous God to people's adamant refusal to accept his love. And so this second word of assurance issues a final warning that the end is very near and assures Christ's followers that Jesus will vindicate his holy name. There's a third word of assurance for faithful endurance in Jesus. We find it in verses 12 and 13. It's a word of encouragement. I'm going to read these verses for us. You need to hear them and the reading of them for your heart. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Friends, in these two verses, we have the power of God in life and the power of God over death. We see a promise in these two verses that should put courage in our heart that steals us by faith to follow him and trust him at all times. This is so far beyond anything that the Antichrist and the false prophet could even dare imagine to promise, but they've tried to deceive by replacing it. 
Verse 12 echoes another call for the endurance of the saints. We saw this just a couple of chapters ago that when we see great suffering and the potential for even to lose our life for faithfulness to God in this world, the, the call came here is a call for the endurance of the saints because what he threatens you with won't touch what God has promised you for. Be sure you're listening to the right things, friends, the right voices. Because sometimes the loud ones are the wrong ones. And the right ones are a still small voice, a cool breeze that blows slowly, that refreshes you. This is encouragement for those who are still on earth to remain faithful to the Lord and obedient to his word. This call for endurance reminds us of the promises of God and that we are to focus on his eternal reward as a means of his sustaining power for us. Yes, the saints may suffer persecution. They will not drink the cup of God's wrath. That cup has been drunk dry. There is no wrath that remains from God for us, friends. Jesus drank that cup for you. And when you trust in his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, you are redeemed to learn a new song for heaven. Better to die faithful than to live wicked. Better to rest eternally in God's care than to let your enjoyment now cost you an eternity of torment and suffering without ceasing. And for those who have not died, excuse me, who have died, it tells us that their good works go with them to be a reward for all that they have done for the name of Christ in this world. Would you look at the contrast that is being painted for us here? The wicked are consigned to an eternity of a restless torment. God's people go to an eternity in his rest. Does that mean we're gonna lay around on the couch all the time in heaven? No, that's not what it means. This is a reversal of the curse upon Adam in Genesis three. When God said, cursed are you for the toil of your labor will be frustrating. You won't accomplish everything you thought you were going to accomplish. You won't do it in the way or in the manner. You'll be completely angsty about your very work. And here, God is reversing the curse of sin by redemption and says, you know what? Everything you put your hands to will, will succeed. Every act of labor that you give yourself to will be a satisfaction you've never known in this life. We only get a window of this in this world when we serve God by honoring him in all that we do. But we do get a look into that window of heaven when we will rest in the care of God and every activity of our life will be the deepest satisfaction of our soul. There won't be one regret in heaven. There won't be one instant of a hammer slamming down on the fingernail. There won't be anything we're sorry for. But the wicked, there won't be a second of reprieve from suffering. They will be tormented eternally. Friends, this encouragement ought to fill our hearts with God's truth to pour his power into us that we might live in the strength of courage that only he can give. This third word of assurance is a word of encouragement. 
Jesus is calling us to endure because the promise of his power will mean that we can endure. Knowing that whatever you may go through, if you will look to him, God will sustain you through it all. The fourth word of assurance for our faithful endurance in Jesus are the remaining verses of the chapter. They are a word of judgment. Again, I'm going to walk through these without reading them. Revelation 14 concludes with final judgment. It's a peek into what is to come. Jesus comes on a white cloud. He has a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The sickle is an instrument of harvest, as you are likely familiar. It's also a symbol for judgment in the Bible. An angel comes out of the temple and announces to swing the sickle and reap, for the hour has come to harvest the earth. And it tells us that Jesus swings the sickle and harvests the whole earth. One swipe, done. In the second account, another angel comes out who also has a sickle in their hand. And the angel who had the authority of the fire calls to the one with the sharp sickle to swing and gather the grape clusters. If you'll remember, the angel who has the authority of fire, we were introduced to in chapter eight, verse five. It was the angel who took the golden censer, filled it with fire from the altar in heaven and threw it down to earth for the judgment to begin. It is that angel who comes out and says, swing the sickle and gather the clusters of grapes. And the angel with the sickle swings, swings the sickle and gathers the grape, throws them into the wine press of the wrath of God, where they are trodden outside the city, and blood flowed, it says, as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Have mercy. And with that, God's final judgment is done. He said, Well, what does this represent? Well, some scholars argue about the first half of this. Is this Jesus who is harvesting the righteous for himself? And then the second would obviously be harvesting the unrighteousness for eternal judgment. Or are both of these a symbol of final harvesting in judgment? I'm gonna let the scholars continue to argue through this. I'm not gonna solve that for them today. When they're ready, they'll call and I'll give them the last word of it. Quite frankly, friends, it can go either way. It doesn't change ultimately the message of what we're talking about here. What we do know at the very least is that the double nature of the judgment emphasizes the severity, the finality of what will transpire. And we know what God's plan is for those who are his. These images show the final judgment of the whole earth. This judgment has not yet come, but listen, because it has been declared here, it is no less certain than if it had already occurred. It is God's promise, he will fulfill it. As you've heard me say here so many times before, when God makes a promise, that promise is more real than you and I sitting in the room today. You better bank on it because you can count on it. It's already as if it is already done. Because God is sovereign. And nothing will stop his sovereign will from being fulfilled. Both are judgment of the wicked here. 
And the double harvest shows the severity of it. Joel chapter three, verse 13 describes the earth being harvested. Revelation 14, 14 through 20 declares that that prophecy will be fulfilled. Jesus' promise to judge the wickedness is the Christian's assurance that we can rest in him. Knowing that what is not right will be made right. That's what God's judgment assures us of, friends. And that those who are his will be secure when the righteousness of his name is vindicated. That was the very prayers of the saints under the altar of heaven's throne. God, vindicate your name, vindicate your name. It was not a prayer for themselves. It was a prayer of supplication. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and let your will be done. And that's the prayer that we see answered here, friends. That is an assurance for us as Christians that judgment will make right all things according to God's perfect will. You see, when we trust Jesus' perfect justice and when we know that he will judge all wickedness, it sets us free to labor for justice now. There's no doubt why this is such a confusing concept in the world. Satan wants to deceive by the very command of Scripture. We are set free to labor for justice now knowing that any a amount of justice that we accomplish will not be the perfect justice of Jesus, but that he will in one day come and judge all wickedness. Sets us free because we know he will bring perfect justice. It also sets us free in another way that we don't have to right every wrong. There's only so much we can do And we are wrong when we put ourselves in Jesus's place to try and do it all. There is something we can do and we ought to be about doing that and remain faithful to that. But we must recognize that we will not accomplish perfect justice in this world. We do all that we can do in the name of Christ and we let the rest remain with him. We don't have to let go and hold grudges that make us bitter and cause us to have problems with God in our own heart. We can release that, knowing that in this world, perfect justice will not be accomplished, but one day, Jesus will bring perfect justice. We don't have to lose hope and become overwhelmed when wickedness seems like it's winning. Why, friends? Because we can continue to give ourselves to the labor of sharing the gospel and making disciples of all nations until Jesus comes because our justice is an imperfect but he will bring perfect justice you see Satan wants us to feel like a failure so he can cause us to lose our focus on what we need to be giving first priority to But Jesus says, you obey my commands. And that's what I've called you to do. The most perfect of all justice that we should give first priority to is this, walking in the light of his truth and bearing a faithful witness to his forgiveness. Nothing's more important than this, friend. This fourth word of assurance is a word of judgment. Christians receive assurance in God's judgment because Jesus brings perfect justice. He bore God's wrath against sin for us. He paid our penalty for sin so that by faith in him, there would be no more guilt to be vindicated, but only peace with God. 
As I said, Jesus drank the full undiluted cup of God's wrath for you. But I want you to see one final thing in this, that those who had rejected God were harvested and reaped to take outside the city where their blood ran in an incalculable and almost immeasurable way. That's the same place that one man was taken and he was offered up for the sins of all. He gave his life willingly so that once for all, by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, all who put their faith in him might receive eternal life and rest in God eternally. All those who reject him will be taken to that same place outside the city. They will answer for their own sins. Who's answering for yours? Who's answering for yours? Jesus is calling his people to faithful endurance and assurance of his love by judging sin and rewarding obedience. Now I want to conclude with this. There are two right responses to this passage today. First of all, the passage tells us we must make a decision to know who we will be identified among Being identified with Jesus does not occur by default. You don't become a Christian because your grandmother or some other person in your life was. You don't become a Christian because your parents were and by genetics you shall be. You don't become a Christian because you live in a highly Christianized region of the world. You don't become a Christian because you hang out one day a week mostly where a lot of people you know are Christians hang out, the church. None of these things make you a Christian. There is nothing you can do to become a Christian other than believing in God, placing your faith in Jesus Christ to repent of your sins and to receive by faith the repentance or the excuse me the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin that he gives and following him by faith. And so I ask you, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin to follow him by faith and obedience? That's the only thing that will bring you into heaven when the reaping of the earth is done. The second right response though, especially for Christians here, is we must recognize the importance of assurance of our salvation that God provides. Assurance may be the most neglected aspect of salvation. So many people that I counsel and that I converse with feel ashamed for needing assurance of their salvation. But friends, God's not ashamed to give it. Our need for assurance from God is the fuel that fills our faith tank. We talk about relationship with God, but we feel guilty when we sense our need for it. God doesn't. When we cry out to God, man, I need you to... Look, Daddy... Look, it's not that our our actions are so impressive. It's that our heart's empty. God remains ever ready to lavish his love on you, friends. Assurance is as much an important part of our faithfulness in following Jesus as any other. It anchors our life to the promises of God. It it anchors our life in the power of God, not to depend upon our own, but to depend upon God. It anchors our life in our eternal hope, which will never perish, spoil, or fade. It anchors us in the eternal victory.
victory of Jesus Christ to stop trying earning our own instead of his. You see, assurance happens when we gather with God's people in worship, when we fellowship with his people in community, when we serve together on mission, we sense the love of God. He's assuring us of our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Assurance happens when we sing the truths of God's word in the gospel, when we encourage one another and counsel one another in this way, when we pray for one another. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're encouraging somebody and they brought their problem to you and you know the perfect word to speak into their life to encourage them and all of a sudden right in the middle of sharing it with them, you go, oh my goodness, God brought their problem to me to speak this word to me. I need to hear what I just told them. It's the power of a God who waits ever ready to assure. No one faults a child for wanting to hear I love you from mom and dad. No one faults a spouse for wanting to hear I love you from their husband or from their wife. No one faults anyone for wanting to know that they are loved and being assured of this, yet we feel guilty. To say, God, I need to know you love me today. I need to sense your presence in my life. I don't know if I can face what is before me. I don't know if I can carry the burden that's been put on me. I don't know if I'm going to remain true to what stands before me. God says, I'm just waiting to pour this big old bowl of love all over you if you'll just stop long enough so I make sure it hits you. He lavishes his love to overflowing. Friends, the person who is not interested in the assurance from God is the one who's ignored the wrath of God. And the one who has ignored the wrath of God is being overtaken by the allurement and the deception of the evil one and worldliness. And listen, the heart that is empty, it will not remain empty. It will be filled with something else. Christian, do not let your heart get to empty. Don't ever let it get below half a tank. That's good counsel. I know some of you don't live that way. I'm talking about your car on that. <laughs> Assurance is an essential aspect of the Christian life as much as any other. God never grows weary of lavishing his love on his children. Do you need to know the Father's love today? Have you just asked him for it? God, would you, would you remind me of your love? Would you show me your love? Would you teach me today to walk in the fullness of your love? Not trying to figure out how to survive without it. But stopping long enough every day to make sure I'm full of it. So there is nothing in my heart that leaves any room for any idol or temptation to begin to replace the eternal power of you. 